Humanitarian aid relies heavily on the support of well-meaning donors, but not all donations are created equal. While clothes are one of the most commonly donated items, they sometimes cause more harm than good. I was in an area called Chilang, and you would walk through this village where the tsunami had basically taken down everything. And right on the center on the shore was a pile of clothing that was the size of a small building. And, you know, it was filled with a lot of inappropriate clothing donations, lingerie, Halloween costumes, prom dresses. And you walk by and you think there's got to be a better way. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, debunking misconceptions about humanitarian aid. And later, the importance of setting human rights protections for domestic workers. Domestic workers are in the margins of society, and yet the care work is so essential in order to regenerate society. But first, when we think about humanitarian aid, most of us think of extreme hotspots like Syria or Myanmar, but there are actually 56 countries currently experiencing a global crisis. Kirsten Gelsdorf is a professor of public policy and director of global humanitarian policy at the University of Virginia. Between her work at the United Nations and other international organizations, she has over 20 years of experience in the humanitarian sector. She joins me to clear up some of the common misconceptions about humanitarian aid. Kirsten, you've been doing humanitarian work almost all your life, your working life. What do you remember was your first large disaster? The first disaster that I really experienced was after the tail end of the war in West Africa, in Liberia. There was um, internal civil conflict, which had led to hundreds of thousands of people being displaced, meaning people having to have fled their homes um, in the wake of violence and seek shelter in different parts of the country, mostly in the capital city of Monrovia. And I remember when we got there, it was really jarring for me because there were, you know, thousands and thousands of people just sheltering in gas station parking lots and in abandoned schools and in the stadium in the center of town. And the first assignment that I had was working with a team of individuals to try to figure out how can we help these individuals? What's what's the best way to aid them? Did they have water and food? So in many of these places, no. But the challenge in these situations is you can't just start to assist because once you start providing more sustainable aid, it can become a pull factor. And then you could be pulling people into something that maybe for the short term is providing them with aid, but for the long term is really unsustainable. So for example, in Haiti, after the Haiti earthquake, one of the big questions was, how do we assist all these people who were displaced from the earthquake and sheltering in different, also parking lots, parks, uh, road medians in between roads? And the question there is, if you set up a camp sometimes, right, you set up a place and you start delivering shelter materials or food or water or medical equipment, you could be basically putting in a long-term slum, right? You could be putting people in a position where they have to choose to go somewhere to receive assistance but that location of the camp you choose could be really far from education opportunities for their children or their other social and safety networks that they need to rely on or places where they can work and find jobs. So it's not just about providing aid immediately. You have to be very thoughtful about what are the longer term consequences of providing this shorter term life-saving aid. Once you have such a vast disaster as this, how long do families and individuals stay usually in a refugee camp? We think often of humanitarian aid as this kind of short-term emergency assistance, right? In some ways, a lot of people even think humanitarian is synonymous with emergency. But the reality today is that there are protracted crises. And in most refugee camps, you know, the average time that someone is there is 25 to 27 years. And in some instances, it's three generations. Let me just say, I'm totally shocked by that. It is shocking. And you know, it's interesting because when I started working in humanitarian aid about 20 years ago, 
we didn't think that way either. So this isn't just kind of an unknown fact that has been lurking there. This is kind of the trajectory of how we're seeing humanitarian need develop over time. So when I started 20 years ago, we would, you know, think of it kind of as, oh, there's a few hotspots around the world and you form teams and you respond to these hotspots. And it was around 40 million people that we assessed globally that needed humanitarian aid. And and also then we would say, oh, it's kind of one shock either. It was a natural disaster that hit. And so we have a natural disaster response that we're doing, or it's a conflict. And so we're doing a conflict response. Well, today, this scenario is, is really different. There's around 240 million people, which is one in 33 people around the world. And it covers 56 different countries, right? I think a lot of people, you say, oh, humanitarian crisis, global humanitarian response. You think Syria, maybe you think Yemen. But really, it's 56 countries around the world that today need a global response and where people are suffering on the scale and scope that we know of in Syria. So it's, it's all over the world. Have you ever been to a disaster site where it felt like not enough of the right kind of help came through fast enough? Well, I think that that's what you see in the media a lot, right? So when I was working on the response to the Haiti earthquake, that was a lot of the narrative in the beginning, right? Where is the aid? The aid isn't happening fast enough. And it's true. There's, it's not, it, it, isn't, it isn't not true that aid isn't happening fast enough, but a lot of that isn't necessarily based on the fact that the aid system isn't working well. It's based on the fact that these crises are really hard to get to people. It's really hard to get aid to people. Talk a little bit about what you saw in terms of well-intentioned donations that missed the mark. So, yes. I mean, I think often people send clothing, and that's really well-intentioned. But, for example, I remember when I was in responding um, into the tsunami that hit Indonesia, and I was in an area called Chilang. And you would walk through this village where the tsunami had basically taken down everything. And right on the center on the shore was a pile of clothing that was the size of a small building, right? It was just a huge mountain pile. It definitely does not describe it. And these were all clothing donations. And, you know, it was filled with a lot of inappropriate clothing donations, lingerie, Halloween costumes, prom dresses, right? And so, I mean, I think that that was a real challenge. And you walk by and you think there's got to be a better way, right? There has to be a way to allow people who want to be part of a humanitarian response, who care about what's happening around the world, there has to be a better way for them to be able to assist and, and to be part of this. Is that one of the things that has changed the most, that you're more likely to get cash donations from people who are trying to assist? Yeah, cash transfers is kind of one of the responses to this that we've seen. And it's not just to close donations. I mean, it's also because you know, you see year after year, and you can see it on the news, right, tarps that are leaking that people are having to live in in these crisis contexts. And so over the last 10 years, there's been a big move to say, how can we provide people in global crises with money, right, whether that is cash money in envelopes or ATM cards filled with money, so that they themselves can make the decisions of what kind of aid that they need. In many of these contexts, it's available, right? You can actually find still food in markets and building materials and different things. And, and so giving money to individuals after a crisis not only supports them in terms of their dignity and their ability to actually spend that money on exactly what they need at that moment, but it also helps stimulate the local economy and the woman who is trying to sell vegetables or the person who is making shoes or the you know, person who is selling construction materials. And so the humanitarian system is getting better at making sure that, that those things are there. And then if they are, then providing individuals with money to be able to, to get those things. What do you make of the COVID pandemic? Would you call the pandemic a humanitarian crisis? I mean, I would because there's you know, it's interesting, you know, Sarah, there's not one definition of what global humanitarian aid is. Right. right. And so it's it's it, you know, and, and I think that's where some of the challenges come up sometimes in terms of, you know, how we respond and what we respond to and actually what's considered a successful response or not. Right. Is it this kind of bed for the night issue or is it, you know, long term dignity and livelihood support? And is that, you know, so it's it's really hard to kind of break that down. But, you know, COVID, I think 
led to a few different things within humanitarian response and with kind of global thinking about it. And one is, you know, not taking human progress for granted, right? And for the first time in 22 years, extreme poverty has gone up. And so I think for the humanitarian system, they see this year as a really critical year to see, will the world respond? Will we come together? Will we be able to address some of these challenges? Or are we going to just see even a greater uptick in humanitarian needs? You know, every nation got slammed, and yet it seems like some will recover and others may not. Yeah, I think that it's not a leveler. Right. I think a lot of people thought, oh, you know, COVID's going to be the great level or everyone's impacted. But it that's not how it works. And it, it's not just COVID. That's every crisis. Right. Crisis exposes inequity and inequality in really stark ways. And the most vulnerable, they suffer the most. Right. And there's nothing natural about natural disasters. They are driven by, I guess, these underlying inequalities and inequities And, you know, certain people suffer more than other people. And so I think that once again, that's the question. How how do we solve inequality globally to ensure that people can withstand crises when they come? Has the pandemic depressed you when you look on the global landscape? I mean, other than, of course, the misery and the duration, has it made you less confident about our ability to rise above these circumstances? Yes and no. The thought that is more depressing for me is that I did think at the beginning when COVID happened, I thought, oh, here's a fully global crisis. People will understand, you know, the call for humanity will be greater than ever across borders because we'll recognize what suffering in crisis is, especially for many, many people who, who've never been in a crisis. But then, you know, you, you quickly also saw the politicization of things like wearing a mask, Right. And so I think that that then is is really hard for me to to move past that, that people sometimes don't want to think about what is what can I do to support the safety and security of somebody else. But on the other side, you know, you also saw neighbors helping neighbors like massive, you know, donations and generosity, looking out for one another, just talking about mental health. And then for me, I'm lucky that I work at a university where I'm exposed to this younger generation who I think is is very attuned and open-eyed about global challenges coming their way and thinking about how everyone's interconnected. And that we can't only think within borders and that that's dangerous and short-sighted. You find that they see themselves more as citizens of the world? Yeah. In fact, sometimes I open my large lecture class. I teach a 200-person undergraduate lecture class. And I ask them, you know, if you could trade in your national passport for a global one with the same rights and responsibilities, will you do that? And and a lot of people raise their hands, right? And they they see the value of that. I mean, I, there was a study I once read which said that you know 70% of this generation would like to pursue a career where they can make a positive contribution to solving global issues. And so the, the question for me is, you know, what are the tools that we give them now to be able to do that? And, and how do we allow them to keep thinking that way? Kirsten Gelsdorf, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Sarah, thank you so much. Kirsten Gelsdorf is a professor of practice of public policy and director of global humanitarian policy at the University of Virginia. Coming up next, caring for those who provide the greatest love labor. Earlier this year, Virginia became one of only 10 states to pass a bill of rights protecting against the exploitation of domestic workers. Jennifer Fish is a sociology professor and chair of the Women's Studies Program at Old Dominion University. She says since most domestic workers in the U.S. are foreign-born women who don't have access to citizenship, they're especially vulnerable to human rights violations. Jennifer's been named an outstanding faculty member by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. Jennifer, more than 2 million foreign women work in the U.S. as domestic workers, maids, nurses, nannies. What have you learned firsthand from these women as you are writing your book that most of us might not realize? 
Well, Sarah, the plight of domestic workers is one that's often hidden, and yet it's so intimate and so valuable because these are the workers who take care of our next generation and our elders and our community members and those with disabilities. And so the great contradiction is that domestic workers are in the margins of society, and yet they're so valuable to the work that we do. The care work is so essential in order to regenerate society. So there's this great divide between how we value those who take care of us and how we compensate them and recognize them in terms of social rights. Are you mostly thinking, hey, we should pay domestic workers more and they have little ability to advocate for that themselves, or is it even more than that? Well, it's much more than that, because at the moment we have an international system that looks after our money and our goods. So we have the World Trade Organization that governs the products that get sold in the international market. We have the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. When it comes to the movement of people, we really rely on an international global economy. And often those who are doing this intimate care work in private homes are without social protections. They may be without citizenship. And so that makes them subject to high levels of vulnerability and exploitation. And so part of the work of this international movement has been setting in place standards and human rights protections, but also making sure that domestic workers can realize those. So there's a practical piece and then there's a moral consciousness in terms of how do we care for those who do the greatest, well, the National Domestic Workers Alliance in the U.S. calls it the greatest love labor. What percent of these women do you think are people who don't have U.S. citizenship, the ones who are domestic workers in the U.S.? Because I think that is a real vulnerability they feel. Yes, indeed, Sarah. So it's difficult to say exactly. The closest analysis we have is through our large uh, National Domestic Workers Alliance, and they estimate about 51 percent of domestic workers and care workers don't have access to citizenship. That's large, right? Right. And remember, those are also women who do cleaning services work and who also do the work of um, nannying and childcare. And some of them work for agencies where they would work for multiple households. And that makes the employment relationship really tricky because you may have five different employers and you visit each one one day a week. And so how does one regulate and assure protections? But the other thing that's tricky about this is you've immigrated from your native land for whatever reason, and now you need to find some income. And you're doing all this privately, under the radar. You need to feed your family. You need to make a living. um, And nobody's going to hire you if you don't have your green card or whatever. Right, and that's where we see this great power imbalance in the employment relationship, because even though we have an international set of protections, one 10 years ago at the United Nations in Geneva, and we have 10 states in the United States that have a Domestic Workers' Bill of Rights. Interestingly, Virginia just passed that this month under the COVID pandemic. Um, We have these protections in place, and yet in reality, domestic workers say, my protections are only on paper. You know, Sarah, I worked with this movement for 20 years, and I've seen some of the worst scenarios and some more hopeful. But in many cases, domestic workers said my passport was taken from me. Uh, One woman in a high-rise apartment building in Asia said I haven't touched the ground in four years because I'm locked in this house and I have to do this labor every day and I sleep on the kitchen floor. And so when we talk about how far we've come in terms of human rights protections and the movement beyond slavery, these these women in this sector really present some of the sharpest contradictions in terms of how far we've come in our global consciousness and also in our practice. How widespread is this in America? Well, it's interesting because we're seeing such a demographic shift and we have to prepare for the elder wave in that we're seeing so many people aging in at the rate of about 10,000 people per day aging into 65 and over. And so that means that about 20% of the population by 2030 is going to be needing some kind of assistance as they move into elder years. And so right now there's there's a movement to look at the elder boom wave and how we'll protect that. Um, So we don't see that we have enough care workers to protect for that wave and the demographic shift that's coming. Do you think that there were more 
foreign domestic workers who came into service in the United States in recent years than had been before? Well, there's an interesting U.S. history there, Sarah, in that it was mainly African-American women who were coming out of the era of slavery who were fulfilling those jobs as private laborers in households. And then we see a shift in the movement of Latina domestic workers coming into the U.S. and replacing some of those jobs as African-American women moved into the public sector. But with that came a whole movement of the global economy and the lack of protections. And of course, we also have an era of anti-immigrant sentiment, and that has shaped the nature of the job and how those, those positions are respected. World Worldwide, it tends to be migrant women of color who perform this labor at the rate of about 93%, migrant women around the world. Uh, and so many of those women are leaving their own families and working for other families. I remember when I started this study 20 years ago, I interviewed a woman in South Africa who was the president of the National Union, and she was building rights in that country as they were transitioning from apartheid to democracy. And she said, you know, what's most difficult to me is that my own children didn't recognize me. I would see them only once a year and they would call me auntie. And the psychological toll of that, when women have to abandon their own families to care for others, and oftentimes they can make more money doing that than they could as, say, a teacher in their own country. So there's a real complexity in terms of what happens when women leave, both psychologically and economically, and how the international market really demands that we move people around the world to perform this kind of care labor. Who was doing that care labor in South Africa when you first saw it in the 90s? Well, it was institutionalized as one of the two most prevalent sectors of work for African women. And so under apartheid, women had to have passes. If they were in the so-called colored category or the African category, they had to have labor passes to move beyond their homes, which are designated according to racial geographies. And one of the two labor sectors was domestic work and then also farm labor. And so I went to South Africa in 1995, and I was so inspired by the human rights transformation there and the story of Nelson Mandela's leadership. And I was able to work with the National Union to put those first protections for domestic work into the, the initial frameworks for labor protections. And what was so interesting is that even though the country had transitioned, they had this progressive constitution, domestic workers were still left out of the basic conditions of employment. They were left out of protections for occupational safety minimum wages. And I went to the Congress um, with Myrtle Vitboy and other leaders of that movement, and they had to say, you know, we were the ones who ironed your shirts today, you in Parliament. If you weren't supported by a domestic worker, you wouldn't be here, so we need to have rights and protections. And actually, South Africa is one of the most progressive countries in the world today in terms of how they have been able to institute protections. On paper, domestic workers would say not always in practice still, but they really have been a role model for the international community in terms of putting in place protections for those who work in private households. So how have these institutionalized protections actually had some effect? Name the areas that they address. For instance, how many hours you really may not be required to work beyond a certain set? Yes. Yeah, so the terms of the Convention on Decent Work for Domestic Worker cover both um, the moral consciousness as well as the practical. And so initially they were debating uh, minimum wage standards, protections for migrants, and that connected with the migrant labor conventions. And also what was tricky is payments in kind. I remember sitting in long debates discussing whether or not an employer could pay a domestic worker with a bag of rice or a roll of toilet paper or used clothing, because of course that had been part of the practice. Um, another piece that represents the colonial history is that domestic workers are often called to go on holiday with their employers, and the activists from around the world who showed up at the United Nations to speak on behalf of their own rights, they said, that's not vacation for us. That's not our vacation. So these were these tricky areas in terms of the negotiations of what's considered a private household and a public workspace when you're asking someone to come in and perform hourly labor. Are you feeling more optimistic than you had been earlier? Are you thinking that 
we may have really begun to turn a corner with this. Well, I'll turn to a sister role model, Marcelina Bausta, who's the leader of the Mexican Domestic Workers Alliance and a great international figure for human rights. And she says, I have great hope in organizations. And so in the last 10 years, domestic workers have mobilized. They've formed the very first international union led by women, the first ever in the world. And because of that, they could actually access humanitarian aid under this past crisis. Some union centers became shelters. People were able to receive emotional support, legal support. There was a great safety net that came out of the last 10 years of organizing. I've also talked with domestic workers who said, I can call on my national president because I was part of an international policymaking organization. And because of that, I have greater visibility and much greater voice in my country. So those are some of the more optimistic but I think that the pandemic, of course, also shows us how deeply divided this country as well as internationally when we look at access to rights and those who have really been on the front lines. Of course, we celebrate our healthcare workers from the beginning, but yet essential workers are those in homes and those are so often women without any protections. And horribly, they were among the first who were feared and turned out because people were trying to settle in with each other in their own little pods. Exactly. You know, Sarah, I talked with a leader in Latin America and South America, and she said, you know, from the perspective of domestic workers, it's the rich people who brought this virus to the world because they got on airplanes and they interacted. And actually in Brazil, the very first case of the coronavirus came from a domestic worker who acquired it from her employers who just came back from Italy. So there's this idea that, you know, the wealthy in the world get to travel and interact and domestic workers are the ones who are really on the front line and so very vulnerable. And in the beginning, of course, we saw domestic workers didn't even have access to protective equipment and and many domestic workers lost their jobs, over 93% in this country during the first month. What became of them for the most part? Well, we're relying on other safety networks and organizations. And actually, the National Domestic Workers Alliance has developed an application, an online application that allows domestic workers to get access to humanitarian care support. So there is a network in place that's allowed for emergency funding. And yet domestic workers are saying, we appreciate the food relief, but we need a whole new economic infrastructure to survive. Myrtle Vitboy in South Africa the international president of the movement said this coronavirus is going to be with us a very long time. So we have to reorient the economy. We can't just continue to receive food aid for the month by month basis. This is so important. Jennifer Fish, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Oh, it's such an honor. I really appreciate this opportunity. Jennifer Fish is a sociology professor and chair of the Women's Studies Program at Old Dominion University. She's the author of Domestic Workers Unite, a global movement for dignity and human rights. Jennifer has been named an outstanding faculty member by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason at Virginia Humanities. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights was drafted in 1948 and signed by over 150 countries after the nightmare of World War II. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, it's the most translated document in the world. But in the United States, it's hardly ever talked about. We don't teach it. Eric Bonds is a sociology professor at the University of Mary Washington. He thinks the document can be used as a powerful tool to address social problems right here in our backyard. Eric, you've been looking at social problems in the U.S. as human rights violations from an international human rights perspective. It's interesting because we often talk about inequality in America, but less about human rights violations, which we think of as in foreign countries, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think, you know, we as Americans have been kind of been trained when we think about human rights, our minds maybe automatically go to a place like Myanmar, you know, or thinking about the horrible situation in Syria. And those are, you know, very, very real human rights crises. But we lose the sense that human rights 
apply it to us all, including the United States, and they challenge us to think about human rights in a way that, that moves beyond the Constitution and constitutional rights. But don't we have entrenched the sense of the fundamental human rights to life and happiness? I think that you know we might champion them around the world, but oftentimes not in our own backyard. We have oftentimes a very legalistic conception of rights, but what, what human rights challenges us to do is to think about rights more broadly in terms of expectations about the moral treatment of people in our society. Just, you know, the expectations of what do people deserve in life? What should they be protected from? You know, what do we want for our own lives that we should then, you know, therefore sort of assume for others? A lot of your thinking about human rights in America stems from your study of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that was created in 1948. You write that that document is studied and revered throughout the world, but not so much in the U.S. You know, that time frame, 1948, is, is really important because it is after the experience of just, you know, the horrendous catastrophes of World War I and World War II and after the experience of the Holocaust and the use of, of two nuclear weapons in Japan. And you really get a sense that in, in 1948, after experiencing all of this, that world leaders, you know, kind of staring at the brink there and let's, saying, let's pull ourselves back. Let's pull ourselves back from the edge of calamity and try to envision a, a better and more hopeful future. And that social context is what led to the drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. What are some of the human rights enshrined in that document? Well, they are many rights that would be familiar to us from our Constitution, like a, you know, a right to free speech and a right to assemble, freedom to religion, as well as a, a freedom to participate in one's government. But it moves beyond that. It talks about a right to freedom from discrimination based upon gender or based upon race. And it talks also about well-being rights, saying that, that every person should have a right to a job, that people should have a right to health care, that when they work, that that work should be well-paid enough to at least allow a, you know, a minimal standard of well-being that allows for the full experience of, of human dignity. How much was the U.S. involved in drafting it? The U.S. was actually very involved. And so the U.S. was a champion of this idea, along with folks from, from France, somebody from Lebanon, from China, representatives from Russia and the Ukraine and other Soviet states. And so in that sense, it really is a global document. It probably isn't, you know, I think it, we shouldn't say it's fully universal, however, because when we think back about 1948, when it was written, this was a time when colonialism was alive and well in a very literal sense. So many, many nations, you know, most nations in Africa were held as, as colonial territories by European powers, likewise in the Caribbean and for many nations in Southeast Asia. So, you know, many indigenous people, for instance, you know, not included in this process. So it's not fully inclusive, obviously, of all the world's people, but it is a global document in the sense that, that it included drafters from, you know, many different parts of the world. So you've said that the document is known and taught in schools in other parts of the world, but not in the U.S., is it? Is it taught in other parts of the world? Yeah, absolutely. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights is actually the most translated document in the world, according to the Guinness Book of, of World Records. And many nations around the world commemorate and they celebrate International Human Rights Day, which is December 10th. But we here in the United States, you know, unfortunately, we, we don't, you know, that day kind of passes and, and we don't really take that opportunity to talk about human rights or to celebrate them. When did you, in your education, come across it? Were you taught it in high school, let's say? You know, I, I love that question because it really sort of exemplifies what I think is, is the lack here is that I didn't encounter this document until I was in graduate school. 
and started to, to read about and to learn about as sociology of human rights. And encountering this document and these ideas was really powerful to me. And it really sort of changed the way I was looking at the world. And I couldn't believe that this thing existed that is so well known in so many places in the world, but I was just learning about it. When I teach it in my college students, that's typically, you know, students' experience as well, that they didn't even know that this existed. Why did it matter to you back then, do you think? I mean, the world was a very different place at that time. What spoke to you about it? I think that what spoke to me is that the ideas are empowering. They, you know, provide this really um, very full, it's not complete, and, you know, it is lacking some important things, but this, this uh, very full framework to encounter our own, own communities and evaluate our own communities and think about what are we doing right and what can we improve. And it was important to me because it allowed me to think about rights, not just you know, in terms of this, this legal thing that you either have or you don't have, but in terms of the, the inspiration to do better, to do better, you know, for our communities, for our young people and, and for ourselves. You've also been paying attention to an issue not far from where you are, inmates at the Rappahannock Jail that have recently formed a human rights coalition to address living conditions there. Tell me about that and how that relates to how you're looking at these human rights violations domestically. Yeah, it was so inspiring and interesting to just read in the newspaper that, you know, local folks are talking about human rights, have formed a human rights coalition here in the Fredericksburg area in, in Virginia. And ultimately the, the issue is that it's related to the coronavirus and the coronavirus has caused all kinds of human rights impacts uh, across America, including in our nation's jails and prisons, where in order to try to stop the spread of the disease in prisons, uh, the authorities have, have done lockdowns in cells for weeks and sometimes months on end where people have, have lost the ability to have family visitations. They have you know, been confined in their jail cells for up to 23 hours a day and, you know, lost ability to do recreation or to eat meals outside of their cells or eat, sometimes even just to do basic hygiene like sh like showering. And so, you know, here in, in the Fredericksburg area, uh, a group formed to advocate on behalf of of inmates. And, and they use that phrase, you know, that important idea of human rights in order to do so. So it, it kind of underscores how, how human rights have been this powerful idea to motivate social change around the world, but also in grassroots organizations in the United States, in our own communities, but including overseas. It has recently felt overwhelming. So on one hand, people are rising up to try to create change, but the problem seems so deep and widespread and entrenched and there's been so much hostility and conflict. Are you inspired more by the movement seeking change or depressed about the enormity of the problems? You know, I am an optimistic person at heart. I, I think that you wouldn't necessarily know that always, like for my students uh, in, in a, a social issues class, because we talk about our human rights failings and how we could improve. But I always try to stress, I, I always try to show how people are working in all kinds of different ways in order to promote and to fulfill human rights. And some of that work is work that we may not necessarily think about as human rights work, like, you know, just right to education. That is a, that is a fundamental human right. And when we realize that education is a human right, it allows us to, to pay attention to and to celebrate our teachers and public schools who are you know, working with, with at-risk youth in order to, to provide them the best education possible, um, to you know, pay attention to and celebrate the folks that are volunteering in food banks or working to provide housing to folks that otherwise may be homeless. That's, that's human rights work. And, and we are seeing a lot of social movements and attempts to change government policy right now. And that's, that to me is inspiring. And for me, it's, it's reason to hope, but also reason probably for us all to get involved and, you know, to, to help out ourselves. 
Well, Eric Bonds, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Eric Bonds is a sociology professor at the University of Mary Washington. He's the author of Social Problems, a Human Rights Perspective. From conflict resolution in Africa to peacebuilding in Southeast Asia, UN peacekeeping missions have a long history promoting global stability. And for much of that history, the peacekeeping missions were commanded by countries in Western Europe. But now developing countries are starting to take the lead. Tim Passmore is an international studies and political science professor at Virginia Military Institute. He says this may signal a larger shift in the global power structure. Tim, what would you consider an ideal peacekeeping mission? I guess I would preface this by saying there's there's this sort of preconceived notion that peacekeeping is actually not very effective because there have been some of these more prominent failures, you know, Rwanda, um, Bosnia, Somalia, and, and these t- tend to be the stories that that we see in the news more. But but actually, peacekeeping has has been quite successful uh, on, on average. For example, um, Sierra Leone in, in the mid to late 1990s, uh, there was a, an ongoing civil war between the government and uh, the revolutionary United Front, and the UN went in, and, and uh, this, this was largely deemed to be a a huge success story. Um, they not only were able to procure peace between the warring parties and, and oversee the implementation of a peace agreement between them, they assisted with transitioning from a highly conflictual society uh, into democratic elections, which again is tremendously difficult uh, to do effectively. Uh, and then ultimately, they stayed behind and helped with a lot of the institution and society building after the conflict. And, and so I think that is sort of a quintessential success story and, and also speaks to really the complex and wide-ranging uh, nature of peacekeeping missions in recent years that they just get involved in so many different things and, and ultimately can do them with, with, with pretty, pretty good effectiveness most of the time. What is the main goal of peacekeeping and who's doing it? Who's behind it? The main goal of peacekeeping has changed over time. It began in 1948, so it's right after World War II. Um, we want to make sure that there are no more conflicts between countries, you know, after that that egregious episode. And so the UN is established, and, and with it, they establish peacekeeping. And the idea of peacekeeping then was that when countries get into these ongoing disputes, uh, maybe it's over territory or maybe it's over other things, they will negotiate some kind of peace agreement, maybe with outside help, and peacekeepers will be sent in to essentially provide a security guarantee as they transition to this post-conflict environment. That changed drastically after the Cold War because not only did we see a major decline in interstate conflicts, right, so wars between different countries, but actually we start to see the rise in civil wars. And so most conflicts now are between governments and rebel groups or revolutionaries within their country who want to overthrow the government. And so the nature of peacekeeping has changed to try and address those emerging threats and and in a number of ways. So first of all, they're going into ongoing violence. Another key difference is when a civil war ends, you don't just push the two sides back beyond their boundaries and say, don't come back towards each other. And so what we've seen with peacekeeping now is actually going way beyond that to peace building and establishing a long-term durable uh, peace that, that hopefully will survive for many years after the conflict. Where do most peacekeepers come from? Which nations, which kinds of soldiers, and who runs the operation? Yeah, so another interesting transition here. So the the traditional uh, configuration of peacekeeping was made up by largely Western developed countries. So, you know, you you imagine your sort of um, Western European, maybe Nordic countries, Canada, those who are very committed to global peace. Um, They were the ones who traditionally would have been supplying peacekeepers to these missions. Things change after the Cold War again, um, not, not only because... Uh, countries like that see themselves as playing a different role. So so now they want to withdraw from putting their soldiers on the front lines and they would rather support peace through perhaps uh, mediation or offering logistical support or financing peacekeeping. Um, But the the demand for peacekeepers is going to increase. So what we've seen since the Cold War has, has been a significant shift towards developing countries. 
And so the vast majority of peacekeepers now are coming from countries like India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Ghana, Ethiopia, Nepal, who you wouldn't necessarily assume would be the most prominent in contributing soldiers, but they really foot most of the bill when it comes to, to providing peacekeepers. You've also been exploring a really recent trend of countries that send their soldiers to participate in these far-off peacekeeping missions in order to keep them from fomenting trouble at home. That's interesting. Yes. Let's look at the country of Argentina. Um, Argentina, for several decades before democratization in the 1980s, was led by a military government. Uh, It was a very strong authoritarian military government, which did a lot of bad things to the Argentinian people. When that country democratized... Argentina finds itself in a situation of what do we do with this huge behemoth of a military institution, which has existed and had power for many years and is presumably going to want to continue to have power in subsequent years. Now, what we see in many instances is that um, the the existing strong military is much more uh, adept and capable than the new democratic government, and they will simply step in and take power over if they desire to do so. And so democratization is very often followed quite soon after by military coups. And so these countries with this strong military legacy and pretty weak democratic institutions have to figure out what to do with the military. I believe that these governments see peacekeeping as an outlet. They see it as a way not just to get rid of the the military in the short term, to give them funding because the UN is going to pay them, they're going to train them, But also there are professionalization benefits of serving in peacekeeping operations alongside peacekeepers from perhaps more established countries, um, serving in roles that are going to train them to be better military with the hopes that then when they come back, that not just the individual soldiers, but that the military as an institution has internalized this idea of the military as being pro-democracy, and they've been divested of their desire to interfere in the democratic process at home. What about more established democracies? Do they also suffer from this feeling that we've trained these soldiers, we have this sort of standing civil army, what can we do with it so it doesn't turn on us? Yeah, I, I think that there is the potential for that. Now, with, with the more established democracies, we assume that they have cultivated Um, civil-military relations in in a way that is healthy and reinforces democracy. And so what we see here in the United States, for example, is very low probability that the military as an institution would ever attempt any kind of coup on the government because they've been for a very long time established as subordinate to civilian authority. Uh, They understand that their role is primarily for national defense and that they are external-facing. And the U.S. military doesn't deal with domestic matters in the ways that militaries in other countries do. And so I think that most established democracies have cultivated this civil-military relations in ways that are not concerning. Um, With that said, there is, of course, always the possibility that democracy can erode. And and we've certainly seen erosion of democracy in in a number of countries in recent years. Uh, And perhaps people turn to the military as sort of a more established, reliable institution. um, And that could potentially ferment a desire for revolution. Did you think about that during the January 6th uprising? I, I did somewhat. Something that I did notice coming out of the events of January 6th was that the surprising number of people involved who are either active duty or have passed service in the armed forces. And uh, and it got me thinking a little bit about this argument of what's gone wrong in recent years, that we've got people who commit their lives essentially to defend their country and, and at the same time are participating in activities to undermine its very stability. And, and so it did get me thinking a little bit about could the United States benefit from getting involved in peacekeeping again? I mean, we may be running the risk of certain parts of the military, maybe just small pockets of individuals, losing sight of what it means to, to be a soldier and to, to defend the United States and, uh, and losing sight of the importance of democracy and, and sort of a cosmopolitan global perspective. And, and so I think peacekeeping could be very beneficial for these kinds of individuals to once again give them global perspective, to show them cosmopolitan values from around the world, to to participate in some of those things whereby they shouldn't be so easily drawn into what are essentially nationalistic ideological ideas. 
the prior administration might have said, actually, we don't want to be part of a multinational peacekeeping force, and we don't want to do it unilaterally. Is there a practical benefit for the U.S. to engage in peacekeeping missions? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think it's one that has divided people down the middle. You know, when you look at American involvement in the world over the last hundred years, a a lot of things that we've gotten involved in have been hard to to pin down as things that are in our national interest. But I think when you take a step back and think about the bigger picture and how stability and security in, in the world ultimately contribute to American national interests, I I think it does become much, much clearer that this is beneficial. You know, when you think about the the, uh, side effects of instability in, let's say, sub-Saharan Africa or or maybe the Middle East, these civil conflicts are are not just leading to killings of tens of thousands of people and and significant victimization, um, but it causes other knock-on effects um, to do with, you know, regional stability, economic factors to do with the region. And and one other thing I would add is that in the absence of the United States in peacekeeping in the last few years, one country has stepped in to really take uh, a very prominent role in peacekeeping, and that is China. Um, And and it's fairly obvious that China is looking to increase its influence, um, particularly in the developing world, and draw countries away from the United States and towards its own um, global strategy. And, and that should be something the U.S. should be very, very aware of and concerned about. Tim Passmore is an international studies and political science professor at Virginia Military Institute. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner, Maya Neer, Cassandra Deering, and Dante Woodvoke are our interns. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.